Does Inveritas have its own verification? We do, but we we didn't. So we have 30 standards. They, they would look very familiar if, if you went to our website and looked at them. They would not look any different than than uh, others you've seen and, and very reasonable set of issues around pesticides and labor issues and minimum wage, et cetera. We didn't really try and re-engineer those standards. We felt like they were actually, um, there'd been a lot of thought put into that. There'd been a lot of civil society uh, conversation. Uh, a lot of them were built up from ILO um, treaties and then UN treaties over over decades. Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Ford, friends. I'm your host, Lee Safar, and this is the first of a five-part episode with a first-time guest on the podcast, David Browning from Inveritas. David, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure, Lee. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I am quite the fangirl, I have to say, of what you have been doing. Um, I only recently learnt about Inveritas from Andrew Tolley. Andrew seems to be sending me all the most amazing guests at the moment. So, Andrew, big shout out to you. Um, We're going to be talking in this series about intentional problem solving in coffee. And before we get started, I kind of want to give people an insight into who you are. And I want to encourage people that just because you're going to hear a lot of corporate names here, don't be scared by any of that. Um, This is going to be a really interesting conversation uh, around some real problem solving that happens. So David, you are a trusted advisor uh, for over 20 years now in working with some of the largest roasters in the world and some of the smaller specialty coffee roasters in the world. You've partnered with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, advised the White House in preparation for Pittsburgh G20 Summit, Uh, You have improved the lives of hundreds of thousands of coffee growers worldwide. You have uh, showcased at World Economics Forum in Davos and developed uh, case studies at Harvard Business School. Um, And your current roles are a board member at the SCA, board member at Nespresso Sustainability Advisory Board, the ICO uh, Coffee Public Private Task Force, and Nespresso Regenerative Coffee Steering Committee. Try and say that with marbles in your mouth. (laughs) That's quite the Aussie thing. Um, And so all of this to say that Inveritas has a very intentional uh, place that it holds in what it wants to achieve. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Inveritas um, and what it is. So what is Inveritas, David? Yes, and Veritas is a startup, but it's a non-profit startup. So, uh, so in our goal is instead of uh, scaling up this startup and then being able to reward shareholders, some of the future, our goal is to scale up the startup, but then take uh, take all of that wealth and then transmit it back to smallholder coffee farmers. Um, and specifically, our goal is to end uh, poverty in the, the coffee sector by 2030, which is now only seven years away. So we mm-hmm. have a we have a steep climb ahead of us, but um, uh, but we, as we'll, we'll probably see throughout this conversation, um, we actually do see that as a as an achievable goal, and so one that we've actually um, put numbers behind over the years. So, so not not just a plucking a number out of the sky, but rather we we intentionally think we can move from where we are to to there by twenty thirty. How many people are in work for Inveritas? Uh, so there's a team of about 80 scattered across all of the, the known continents, um, plus another group of about four or 500 um, who actually do the verification on the ground. So in, in total, it's probably 500, 600 people at this point. 
Um, but our, our goal is, is really to reinvent uh, the way sustainability verification has been done um, over the in the past 20 years. So that was that was really what we set out to do is to re-engineer sustainability verification. Mm. And folks, when I asked David why I had never heard about him, <laughs> um, out of those 500 people that are on his staff, there are exactly zero people that work in marketing. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Am I right, David? <laughs> so um, this is not something that you usually do. Uh, podcasts are not something that you usually do, correct? Not, not at all. No, we, we, uh, we're, we're more comfortable out in the field talking with farmers. We do not spend a lot of time um, doing PR and marketing. But, uh, um, but yeah. you know, recognize we'll, we'll need to do more of that going forward. <clears throat> So when it comes to innovation of sustainability verification, tell me more about what that exactly means. Yeah, so, so verification has been around for, uh, for, for uh, at least longer, but in, in, a, in its main current form, 20 or 30 years. And mm -hmm. it's, not, um, it's not really a complicated idea. Consumers uh, want to know that the goods that they buy have been produced in the right way. They'd, they'd like to know that there hasn't been slave labor, labor associated with it. There hasn't been uh, forest mm. deforestation. So they, they sort of see all these bad things over here in the press and then, then they've got these brands over here that they love. They, they've got their favorite coffee shop they're going. Uh, and they'd like to know that uh, it's been produced in the right way. And uh, it's not just consumers, but regulators would like to know that um, companies own, own owners and shareholders um, and civil society. So over the last 20, 30 years, there's been this growing momentum that people are more aware of, of the supply chains and I'd like to know uh, more about that. And and there were uh, ways that you could you could get that reassurance, and that was through certifications that have been around for um, you know for decades now. Mm -hmm. uh, they they started with the with the very good intent of being able to provide that that assurance to um, to consumers and to companies. And when we talk about verifications within Veritas, do you guys have your own veri verification, kind of like fair trades of verification and organics of verification? Does Veritas have its own verification? We do, but we we didn't. So we have 30 standards. They, they would look very familiar if, if you went to our website and looked at them. They would not look any different than than uh, others you've seen and, and very reasonable set of issues around pesticides and labor issues and minimum wage, et cetera. We didn't really try and re-engineer those standards. We felt like they were actually, um, there'd been a lot of thought put into that. There'd been a lot of civil society uh, conversation. Uh, a lot of them were built up from ILO um, treaties and then UN treaties over, over decades. Folks, our first on-demand workshop, How to Become a Coffee Consultant, is now available for you to learn at your own pace for just 50 euros and it comes with a certificate upon completion. Go to mapperforward.coffee forward slash workshops or click the link in the show notes for more details. Support this podcast by supporting our sponsors. So we felt like that was actually uh, that framework was was fairly reasonable, uh, but from working on the ground, and we I spent most of the last twenty years um, working with smallholder farmers on the ground. They would often ask us, "Should we get certified?" And we would we would go and look at the math. Um, but from being on the ground, we could see that things weren't uh, weren't working the way it was initially intended. And those those three main issues from uh, from a roaster point of view. Um, the first issue was it was it was quite expensive, and as much as roasters mm. want to uh, build that out across their entire um, 
their entire coffee purchases, what was actually happening is, is a, a modest number of consumers would actually pay for it, but a large number of consumers um, would not pay for it. And so uh, it had to be just at the at the normal going rate. So then that become a very large uh, expense uh, for any coffee company. But obviously, as the companies, you get bigger and bigger, that becomes, you, know, you get into tens of millions of dollars. Um, the second problem was scale that uh, there were there were certified coffees out there, but they're really a pretty small minority. Even today, there's less than 20% of, of the world's coffee is, is certified. Um, so most, most of the coffee farmers are excluded from that. If you're a bigger state, yes, you'd be part of it. If you're part of a cooperative, yes. But most coffee farmers are not a bigger state or part of a cooperative. Mm. They were really excluded. And, and this was a world that we could see was increasingly going this way. So we realised there, there was a need to work out a new way of how could you actually help um, smallholder farmers all over the world get involved. Uh, and thirdly, there were real quality control issues. Uh, we could see on the ground that um, that uh, there, was a, there was a host of issues that needed to be uh, redone to improve the quality of the way this was done. So, for example, uh, the sample sizes weren't large enough. So sample sizes that were taken to do audits were based on an old rule of thumb from the 1920s that, that didn't actually hold statistical water. So, so whatever results were coming back, if you took a sample that's too small, so if, if I was to take a sample of two mm-hmm. and to ask you and I, uh, who do we think will be the next president of the United States, um, we would have a result, but it wouldn't be statistically meaningful right. because the sample's too small. So we had to build the sample size up. Uh, a lot of the audits weren't happening during the harvest, but that's precisely the time when you can go and, and find out what's really happening and understand labour issues. So we needed to address that. We needed to address perverse incentives. Uh, we didn't want a, a world where we were paid based on a good result. And the, the traditional systems were create a lot of perverse incentives because they're only only getting paid if it came back with 100%. So we changed that model to um, we'll pay us to do the work, but we we want to remain sort of uh, indifferent uh, from a commercial point of view about what result we bring you, and you'll you'll just have to um, absorb what we bring. So that, that was what was happening on the on the roaster side, but it also wasn't really happening um, for smallholders. Smallholders also they had to pay for the audit on their side, um, right. and it's prohibitive that's fine from the state but an average small order might earn a couple hundred dollars a year and a state and a an audit might cost four thousand dollars so that wow. clearly did and and so we said we want to re-engineer this so that it's free for coffee farmers we felt that was, that was the right way to line this uh, but that would mean we'd have to really drive the cost down while simultaneously increasing the surveys and and increasing them by a lot so a typical certification um, entity will will do Two, three thousand surveys uh, a year globally in coffee. Uh, we'll do sixty thousand. So it wasn't. We had to increase it by a little. Wow. We had to by a lot. Wow. So, so we had a, a lot to do. We had to to work how to re-engineer this process to give it more integrity. Work out how we're going to get to the whole world, um, and do that fast, which which we have. So we now cover ninety uh, percent of of all the world's coffee and about seven million farmers. So so those sixty thousand surveys. Uh, provide a statistically representative sampling of, of about two thirds of the world's coffee farmers, um, and do that in about six years. But so that was the that was the the task we set ourselves six years ago. I have to ask, why coffee? What got you into coffee? Uh, I was I was actually invited to back back between 1999 and 2003. Um, mm-hmm. As most listeners would be aware, there was uh, a big drop in coffee prices. Mm-hmm. Sort of perfect storm of a, uh, a few different uh, factors that came together, and 
I was working for McKinsey and Company at the time, and a lot of the coffee companies came to McKinsey and, and asked, uh, "Could you help us think about this issue and what what could we do?" We wanted we wanted we understand that smallholder farmers are hurting. Uh, what can be done about this? Uh, and it's uh, it's not as easy as it first looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so we we dived into the issue, but but by the end of uh, that work, I was very keen to commit my life to to helping smallholder farmers. Um, out of poverty. So um, I, I jumped when the nonprofit sector went to work for TechnoServe and uh, and focused on um, helping smallholders out of poverty. And then your intentional problem-solving life started <laughs> in coffee. <laughs> it, it did, yeah. <laughs> As I the, um, so given, given the parameters we gave ourselves, which were quite challenging, we wanted to dramatically ramp up what had been done before and yeah. clear barriers and why that hadn't been done before. We wanted to dramatically lower the cost by 70, 80% um, for roasters so that we could unlock it being done um, globally. But we also then wanted to reduce it even further and we want to make it free for um, the smallholders. Um, and so clearly there's going to have to be something really different that was done. And fortunately for us, um, uh, around about 2016, there were some real changes that took place uh, with machine learning or artificial intelligence. And it's obviously that's that's tremendously in the news uh, these days with mm. ChatGPT, uh, where it really broke into popular consciousness. But around about 2016, where, where something really interesting happened with machine learning. And, and AI has been around for nearly 100 years now. So um, wow. I think AI working on how to play a game of checkers, I think, in about the 1940s. Uh, it could And it could beat the average checker player, I think, by about the 1950s, about at which time uh, machine learning could then uh, play chess. By, I think, it was the 1990s, IBM built a computer that was able to... Uh, Watson, right? Uh, Watson, Watson or... Watson? Yeah, Watson or Big Blue, one of the two, but it was, it was able to beat one of the, the world's mm-hmm. grand checkers. Um, in the early start of this century, we started getting vacuum cleaners that knew not to fall mm. downstairs, um, and of course, self-driving cars, which are, which we're now a lot more familiar with. But so it's been a very long journey. But but 2016 was was around the time when neural networks came into play, and that was quite a um, uh, that was quite a fork in the road for AI. It went from this is, this uh, old AI, which was much more about. Uh, what is the problem I want to solve and what are all the steps that I'm going to have to code to work out how that would be solved um, to changing to much more of the way, I guess you could say the way humans learn, which is much more fuzzy. You know, a toddler doesn't yeah. doesn't look at an instruction manual to work out how to get the cookie jar. They, they sort of work it out uh, in very fuzzy uh, trial and error. Um, and so neural networks were, were, were far more um, expanding their capabilities. And that was important for, for what we were trying to do. Obviously, there's there's a lot in the news about um, the future of AI and machine learning, whether it's for good or bad, but there were, certainly was a very good uh, purpose that we could employ it to, and that was to dramatically uh, reduce the cost of what we're doing, increase the quality, and then be able to go after the, the issues we're after. So so we um, so we embedded machine learning, digitized uh, the whole process, took it out of the pen and paper realm, which is something that's been happening in industries all over the world um, over the past you know, 10 or 15 years, a lot, a lot of industries. I, I, I met a guy uh, a few years ago, surprisingly, who told me that still most hotel bookings are done with pen and paper, which surprised me. But, wow. But, uh, and, uh, wow. But, uh, so, 
so there's still a lot of a lot of that to be done, and there's tremendous efficiencies, as you might imagine, to be gained by if you can just digitize everything. And, and we're getting increasingly used to uh, digitization, including you know when we go to a local coffee shop, where uh, yeah. we're used to everything just being seamless and non-paper, and everything goes from the phone to the to the hardware back to the phone, etc. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to ask you a little bit about that technology with relationship to the producers and getting them to fill in um, all the information with regards to the certification. How are they leaning into the technology or do you have people that are on the ground that are taking care of that side of things for them to do the audits? Um, so the whole thing is done as a verbal conversation. And yes, we have we, we oh, deal wow. in languages. Everything has to be done in a local language. That, that's one of the things we had to solve for. So the historical mm-hmm. world was that you sent a, you trained up an auditor who was very good, really knew this world, and then you shipped them out to various places to do the work. Right. But we can go to countries where there's 20, 30, 40 languages in a country. So we'll we'll use uh, young people from the actual areas, uh, train them up so that they can the whole thing can be done in their own language. And uh, when we started, there was a lot of um, skepticism. A lot of our um, uh, the, the people we we initially talked to about this, I I just cannot believe that uh, <laughs> farmers are going to want to talk to you. And uh, he said, you're not you're not going to try and pay them. You're just going to ask them to to share their experience, what's going on in their lives. Uh, and we said, look, we've been working with smallholder coffee farmers for a lot of years. We, we believe that if we're, with, uh, if we're courteous with their time and we don't make it an enormous ordeal, um, we did want to be able to show up unannounced. That was one of the things we wanted to fix. Rather than giving advance notice in order, we thought it would have a lot more credibility if you if you just showed up uh, unannounced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found that farmers were very receptive. I think there's probably, um, I, I haven't looked lately, but I think probably less than 3%, something like that, of farmers say, look, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm too busy. Right. Um, and come back. But the vast majority of farmers are very happy to, to talk with us about the, uh, the challenges that they face and and um, and so we've found that not to be a barrier. Yeah, awesome. The one thing that I have definitely come to realise through having this podcast is one problem we need to solve for is that farmers are continuously feeling that they're not being seen by the consuming end of the industry and I think something like what you guys are doing is helping them to be seen and heard. So uh, that doesn't surprise me that they were open to to talking with you. It's really great. So, so in the, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I think um, one thing I see time and time again in the coffee industry is it, it is such a vastly fragmented supply chain that, mm-hmm. that that some coffee farms are very easy to get to. They're, they're in easy, easily accessible countries or they're yep. on roads near capital cities, but there's a whole host of coffee farmers who never uh, see people. We, we just visited a coffee community in Papua New Guinea um, to work with them on on clean water, and uh, I think we were the first visitor to come to that school in thirty years. So wow, uh, PNG seems to be one of those places where you keep hearing about how difficult it is to get to the coffee farms. You know, you've got to uh, get there by plane first of all, and then drive for twelve hours, and then take another seaplane, and do all these kinds of really extraordinary things to get to the coffee farm to taste these extraordinary coffees. But they've never seen white people before they've never been visited by anybody who's purchasing coffee before i mean every country has its challenges in yemen it's it's challenging to have your phone out in the open because of security risk right in brazil, in brazil the team just traveled one hundred and fifty thousand kilometers in the last three or four months wow uh, 
So, so every every country has its challenges, but uh, but you know, credit credit to the Enveritas team. They, they've just really worked out how to um, do do extraordinary work across across 25, 26 countries and you know, all the continents. It speaks very clearly to the mission that you guys have and the way that the organize how committed the staff are. So that's really exciting. Over the next um, few episodes, folks, we're going to talk about some very specific. Um, problems that the Inveritas team have solved. So in the next one, we're going to talk about uh, wet meals. So join us for that. It's going to be, it's a great story. I'll t- um, so please join us for the next episode. Peace, love and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in, friends. There are two ways you can support this podcast. Firstly, become a paid member of our YouTube channel. Secondly, you can join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Both have options for exclusive ad-free content and early release content. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. The Daily Coffee Pro is produced by Map It Forward and the music you're listening to is called Run 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 off of my album Laundry After Midnight. To get older episodes of this podcast, as well as more information on Map It Forward, head to mapitforward.coffee. You can find links and more information in the show notes below.